Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's coming up to four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today, a torture report which damns the Sri Lankan government, reported by an international organisation from South Africa, and I'll be speaking with Dr Brian Sinuratna. The history and present day of Costa Rica, Andrea Bayer from the Freedom Socialist Party in the US, will be talking about that. The 2017 IPAN, that's the Independent Peace and Independent Network for Australia. Their conference is being held from the 8th to the 10th of September and Shirley Winton knows all about that. And also, historic vote to ban nuclear weapons. I'll be speaking with Associate Professor Tillman Ruff who's been in there for many, many years advocating for the ban. So we'll be hearing how he's organised that over many, many years to the historic vote on the 7th of July. But first, let's have Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when after years as a good, good union boss... Union boss, not a pejorative in his case, and isn't it heartening to know in a world suffering the anti-social disruption of evil, evil union bosses, there is the odd good, socially responsible union boss, years as good union boss who never suffered the distraction of ever actually working in the industry, and then years fighting for, sacrificing himself for the lazy avaricious workers of this country by putting his bum on the plush seats. Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big supremo little Billy Shorten ambition made an amazing discovery in equality. Not suggesting he's a slow learner, but little Billy reckons there may well be a bit of inequality in True Blue Aussie. Thank goodness for little Billy. Without him, how would we have known? For a start, he explained, a glaring, glaring inequality is... I am not equal with big supremo Malcolm, but between now and the next election, inequality offers the promise of making me more than equal if you follow. What followed was a defence of inequality by its practitioners and their puppets, or sorry, no, their parliamentarians, who understand that without inequality we could not enjoy the benefits of the trickle-down effect, those much-appreciated drops of yellow liquid, the benefits of the greatest little economic order of them all, which our stroke is good for all of us. See, little Billy was exploiting the politics of envy, ignoring the obvious economic truth that without the filthy, filthy rich, the unclean, unclean poor would be even more penurious. The poor should thank the filthy rich every day for making their lives that little bit better. Big economic guru scuttled them more less and spoke for the exponents of the greatest little. He is proposing an envy tax. Dear me, not an envy tax. And Scuttlebeam called on little Billy to release the costs 
of this outrageous policy, the costs of asking people to pay at least 75% of the tax they should pay, showing Scuttlebeam's deep concern for the interest... Now, regular listeners to Tuesday Home Time will realise that I'm playing last week's... This week that was, but for those who missed it, have another listen. The only way to help the poor, the only way to increase wages is to make the filthy, filthy rich, filthy, filthy richer and not place restrictions on their important role like, well, like expecting expecting them to pay taxes, for instance, which is sort of with only slight embellishment what she did say. And the Minister for Financing the Private Sector, Matthias Rotten Tudor, said the socialists were intent on envy and class war, and it was envy and class war to ask business and the filthy, filthy rich to pay the tax they were avoiding, uh, sorry, uh, minimising, presumably because of those costs Scuttlebeam is so concerned about. And the small business profit supremo, Peter Strongbox, said the socialists were planning both asking small business to pay tax and increase Sunday penalty rates which small business simply couldn't afford. They'd go broke. Paying taxes and paying workers. The increase in penalty rates, of course, being restoring the penalty rates to where they were before the recent cuts, when they didn't go broke, but then add having to pay tax as well, and yeah, yeah, good point, Peter. And the Minister for Financial Services to the Greatest Little Economic Order, Kelly Oda Wire, evil union so evil, said tightening tax-dodging laws, or, sorry, tax minimisation regulations on family and other, and other trusts, was an attack on philanthropy, charity and disabled people. Little Billy Shorten Ambition, what have you got against philanthropy, charity and disabled people? She was all compassion. Trusts are used for good, good, good purposes, not for tax evasion. And she's a junior economic type minister, so she wouldn't be wrong. Just a bit unfortunate, the same article quoted a Sydney professor of tax law estimating trust manipulation costs the public purse at least $2 billion a year it should receive. But he must be wrong. We'll back Kelly every time. Trusts are not a tax evasion tool. Well, they can't be. Half the front bench in Canberra uses them. And does anyone believe they'd be avoiding tax? Why, I know one minister's four-year-old and seven-year-old dear little children paid a whole $2.55 each, each, in tax just last year. The same amount as both their parents. And little Billy addressed poor Kelly's concerns by excluding charity and disabled people and farmers, meaning the filthy, filthy rich will suddenly become ardent philanthropists and ardent supporters of people with disability and dedicated primary non-producers. A little Billy, we asked, if your campaign to use the poor, this inequality you've discovered succeeds and you become more equal than Malcolm, big supremo, what will you do about inequality? I don't follow, because obviously after I've eradicated the inequality, which makes me unequal, there, there won't be any inequality. Oh yes, there's no doubt he's the hope of the side. Now, as little Billy addresses inequality, as we commented last week, hope no one has the silly misplaced idea that this burgeoning campaign over super funds by the aforementioned Kelly Odawire evil union so evil has anything to do with evil unions being so evil, with addressing the inequality which prevents the big four banks and the great financial institutions of this world getting their hands on all that lovely, lovely money. 
Why, she said there's no connection. But her concern may well be that the badly managed funds, those with evil, evil union appointments on their boards, are, as we know, outperforming the efficiently managed funds, those run by the esteemed banks and big, big financial institutions boards. wonder if it's anything, anything to do with the latter having a profit motive for themselves rather than the workers. Probably not. But Kelly knows it's important to get all that money into the hands of the efficiently underperforming to avoid people asking questions about the underperforming. What would happen if people lost faith in the banks, she asked. Good point. They might even call for a royal commission. Hang on, there's some sort of commotion down in Malcolm's office. A big supremo, big supremo. There's another senator caught up in this dual citizenship business. Great, great. The way it's going, the Greens will have no one left. Serves them right. Talk about careless. There's no excuse. Ignorance is no, no defence. They have to resign. Great, great. Ah, uh, no, big supremo. It, it's one of ours. One of your hayseed and sheepshit party ministers. Matt Canavan of Clean Coal. Oh, uh, obviously an innocent mistake. We must challenge this in the High Court. Ignorance is an obvious defence. As it turned out, Matt fell back on the Shane Warne defence. Me mum made me do it. It's all her fault. And he might have a case, because Matt said he had no idea. And we've known for ages he has no idea. But what a tragedy if the publicly funded private Adani the environment lifting India's poor out of poverty coal mine and clean coal itself lost one of their most forceful proponents. Perhaps his mum's a closet socialist. Even if those who know about these, these things say it would have been impossible for him not to know. And, well, maybe it was explained to him, but the matter was so complicated he still didn't know, just couldn't understand. That's very possible. Speaking of mothers, following yet another, uh, sorry, a police murder, a uh, sorry, killing in Sydney Wednesday, the big brass said there would be an independent inquiry. We've appointed the, you know, like, officers' mothers to conduct the, like, you know, inquiry, and our information is, you know, like, they've always known how to teach them a, like, you know, lesson which certainly sounds much more independent than the police inquiries we're used to, and after all, the victim was brandishing a pair of scissors. So what choice would the coppers have, other than using a bit of common sense? But then we are talking about, yeah, yeah. But thank goodness for their vigilance. Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, P1, screaming yesterday, Sky High Evil! Then, father-son teams planned a bomb, etc. So I read on to find what charges had been laid, given the Wapping Sin had found them guilty of, uh, guilty of, 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 no idea. No charges had been laid. Oh, well, when there's no doubt saves time, well, saves wasting time and expense on a trial and having to produce something as unnecessary as proof. Finally, sadly, on a serious note, the death of historian Brian McKinley, a regular commentator on this program, a man with a wonderful way with words of irony and cynicism, first met Brian when he played a key role back in the early 70s as we formed the socialist left faction in the ALP after federal intervention sacked the Victorian branch, whose secretary was another former 3CR presenter, the late Bill Hartley, a period younger listeners might find it hard to believe when the socialist left faction was, wait for it, socialist left. 
And Brian proved himself both an invaluable contributor to debate, to policy development, to active support, and as a delightful bloke with a wonderful balance of intellect and wit. He wrote regularly, mostly on relevant historical matters for the Factions newspaper, which I edited, and later, apart from regular contributions to this program, he was a regular on Par Avion, Bill Hartley's long-running Saturday morning program, where his vast knowledge of world history, of the social history of any country we could name, provided us with so much information and enjoyment, thanks to that balance of delivering information through such entertaining language, and my favourites were his comments on the US, on its political, economic and military elite and their policies, which he hated with a passion. His wit, his sarcasm seemed to hit their heights, such that I always look forward to his contributions with anticipation. Those who have listened to those contributions will be aware of his erudition, but also aware of his humanity and concern for real social justice and equality. It was a privilege to work with him, a pleasure to listen to him, and to state the obvious, we will miss him. Farley, comrade. Good afternoon. The 2017 International Truth and Justice Project released a 89-page report on the 14th of July titled Unstopped, 2016-17 Torture in Sri Lanka. To talk about the report's findings, I'm joined by human rights activist Dr Brian Sinwaratna. But first, Brian, who are those comprising the ITPJ, team of investigators and prosecutors? This is actually a South African human rights project administered by an internationally famous lawyer and human rights activist, Yasmin Suka. She has actually got reports and done so much work much more than Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch or any of them put together. In fact, I have summarized the 89-page report to 23 pages, and the last sentence, I've asked the question, what do we do with Yasmin Suka and ITJP? And I've answered the question myself, saying, uh, I think we should recommend them for a Nobel Prize for peace as was done with Amnesty International. Can you just explain to me why a woman in South Africa would be focusing on Sri Lanka? Yeah, it is the South African Human Rights Commission. Uh, It's not entirely focusing on Sri Lanka, but uh, they are focusing on human rights all over the world. But there is a section in that project that is the International Truth and Justice Project Sri Lanka. Project hyphen through Sri Lanka that deals with only Sri Lanka. As you said, this is an 89-page report which we've reduced to about 23. Harrowing reading, even for someone like yourself who's been following issues like this for many years. Yes, it has been harrowing, but I didn't know until I saw it in this report the degree to which they have descended. There is a section there that actually is set aside to show the instruments of torture and what they are doing. And that shocked even me. And it takes a lot to shock me uh, in this game because I've been at it for so long. But I, I, I didn't think that human beings behave like this. Actually, for your listeners, I would strongly suggest getting to Google 
and uh, typing ITJP, and you can get straight into this paper. But it is worthwhile, however harrowing it is, it is worthwhile going through this paper just to see the level to which human beings in Sri Lanka in the armed forces have descended. One of the witnesses, there were 23 Tamils who had escaped to Europe, mainly the UK. One of the witnesses in the witness statement given said they are behaving like animals. And I have added a comment that as a former zoologist myself, uh, I have to correct that and say that animals don't behave like that. Barbarians do, but not animals. It is really horrendous. In fact, there are, I think, going to be a fair number of people who are not going to be able to complete reading this report. It is so horrendous. But it is important, it is extremely important that they do just to show that the people escaping from the area and coming to places like Australia are not economic refugees. The report makes a very important point that a number of victims arriving in London, having arrived in London in the most bizarre manner, have attempted suicide after getting there. And Yasmin Suka says uh, that is not an indication that people are going uh, in search of a better life because having got to a better life, you don't kill yourself then. One of the people arriving was in such a disastrous state after the torture that they had to actually take him from Heathrow Airport straight to hospital for electroconvulsive therapy because he was so depressed and suicidal. But the, the report also comments on the extremely high degree of depression and suicide in these people, both in Sri Lanka as well as outside. And certainly, uh, the ones that have been referred to me here in Australia, a number of them are suicidally depressed. This is, mind you, after getting out of Sri Lanka. I think it is just bizarre. And uh, this is a report that should, I think, arrive on every parliamentarian's desk in England, Canada, and in particular Australia. These are the people who are sending these people back. They should know that uh, they are sending them back to death. One of the witnesses uh, in his witness statement said, uh, they all have had to bribe themselves. Uh, in other words, somebody have uh, had to find uh, between 1200 and $12,000 each uh, to get out of the place. One of the paramilitary uh, militant groups, the EPDP, the Elam People's Democratic uh, Front or something like that party, uh, who brokered the uh, release, have said, we are arranging the release for you now. Don't you ever come back to this country. Because if we catch you, if they catch you back in this country, they will surely kill you. So when people are sent back from Australia to Sri Lanka, as I have pointed out repeatedly, you're sending them to a probable, possible or indeed probable death. The Roman Catholic Bishop of Manor, 
the former Bishop of Mena, uh, Right Reverend Rapu Joseph, wrote a letter to be circulated here in Australia to, to all of us uh, who, uh, uh, you know, several who are non-Tamils, saying, can you please ask your government in Australia not to send these people back? Because one of a uh, few things will happen. Number one, they will disappear. Two, they will end up in jail. Three, in a concentration camp. Four, will be tortured. Five, will be raped. And six, will be killed. One of those six things will happen because he said, in every one of the people returned from your country, that's Australia, to his diocese in the north-west uh, coast, up in the Tamil area, those are the six things that have happened to them. I mean, it's a violation. It's a gross violation of the UN Asylum Seeker, UN um, uh, Asylum Seeker Convention. Now, this is only 24 people interviewed. There's no idea how many people have been subjected to this torture. Yes, just in the uh, in the time that the new government took over. ITJP alone have evidence from 106 people. That's their record. But they have records of hundreds and hundreds of people. They, as I just said, no other organization, not Human Rights Watch, not Amnesty International, nobody has taken the amount of trouble, time, trouble, and money to embark on these uh, investigations. I think it's some Greek uh, millionaire who is financing some of this. He's a chap who uh, really has done a lot of work in the human rights area. You spoke about the mental problems resulting from this torture. What about the physical as well? Uh, physical, indeed. <clears throat> I'm a gastroenterologist. I had a asylum seeker uh, refer to me saying that every time he has a bowel action, it was painful. And I asked him what happened. They said they put an Eslon pipe up his uh, bottom and then put a barbed wire into the Eslon pipe and pulled the pipe out and jiggled the uh, barbed wire up and down. I mean, I couldn't believe it. And I said, you know, I, I, I find it difficult to believe. He said, well, have a look. And as a gastroenterologist, I had the wherewithal to have a look. And indeed, there are linear lacerations up and down his entire rectum and uh, adjoining area, completely compatible with what he had told me. And this report, uh, there are two witnesses who gave statements that that's exactly what had been done to them. What about women? There's a problem here. Of the 23 victims who were interviewed, only three were women. The reason for that is that most of the people who will come forward and give evidence abroad are men and not women. I have written a book on this called Sri Lanka Sexual Violence of Tamils by the Armed Forces, in which I have said that women who are raped will not even tell their relatives in Sri Lanka that they have been raped, much less they're likely to talk about it once they get out. You see, it is such a shameful thing that they would rather suffer in silence than come and... Uh, you know, talk about it uh, publicly. Has this changed since 2009, or is it just a continuum? I think that it is getting worse. Where the Tamils in the north and the east are concerned, very definitely 
the situation has not changed for the better. And even in the south, the change has been minimal. But I think that in the north and the east, a lot of your listeners would not know that the north and the east of Sri Lanka is not under the Sri Lankan government. It is under the Sri Lankan army and the police. 99 and 95% of them Sinhalese. It's a police state. And if the army are going to be there, and President Sinsena and uh, the Prime Minister Vikramasinghe have specifically said on numerous occasions that the number of people in the armed forces is not going to be reduced. Well, there are around 300,000 armed forces in the north and the east with a population of about a million. The ratio of civilians to armed forces is 5 to 1, which is a ratio not seen in any other country in the world. Well, it brings the question of who's training these torturers. It gives some indication. They have been trained in a number of countries, but I don't think they need any training. They can train themselves. It's just a question of thinking up more and more bizarre methods of inflicting pain and suffering on people and then putting it into practice. To what end? The end is to make sure that they will be absorbed into a Sinhala Buddhist country. Numerous witnesses said they want to know whether we are going to regroup as a militant organization. He said, you know, let alone regroup, he said we are struggling to survive, but they are determined to see that the entire Tamil North and the East is, to use a new word, signalized, that is, replaced by Sinhalese people. That is the object of the exercise. What the Sri Lankan government wants is the North and the East without people. They don't want people there. They will do the peopling of the area themselves, that is, from the South. Where is this report going? I don't know where. Yasmin Suka has sent the report, but it's certainly on her website. That is why I thought I will do a summary, because, as you know, nobody reads anything more than about five or ten pages. And I thought I will send it to as many people as I can lay my hands on. I certainly sent it to uh, a couple of the senators in Australia, but I think I'll have to take some time off and send it to all the parliamentarians and certainly the immigration officials, which I did in the Department of Immigration in Australia. But it should go to all the policy and decision makers in the United Nations and elsewhere. Somebody will have to do this because I don't have the facilities or the funds to send it all over. It's a crucially important report. Are there any UN people managing to get into Sri Lanka? Our UN people uh, have gone, most certainly. In particular, that absolute rogue, Ban Ki-moon, who is the worst UN Secretary General ever. He went there, and of course, he's a close friend of the Rajapaksas. He said that all was well. But I think that uh, the new High Commissioner for Human Rights, Prince Zaid Al-Haq, he has gone there. The problem about going there is that they rely on the Sri Lankan government to take them around. And they are not going to take them and show them army torture camp, uh, known as the Joseph camp. And I've said in the last closing paragraphs, uh, it's only the last closing paragraphs that I have written, I said, I would urge you to get your member of parliament to go to Sri Lanka and to visit 
various places specifically ask for the Criminal Investigation Department fourth floor in Colombo where torture takes place daily and also most certainly to go to the north and ask where is Joseph Camp that's in Vaunia and it may not be a tourist attraction and you'll be told so but to insist on going in and having a look. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for doing that, Pracy, of the report. Okay. And that was Dr. Brian Singaratna, tirelessist human rights worker, originally from Sri Lanka, been living in Australia for, I think, about 60 years. Bring down the covenant, bring it to its heel. The seventh annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on Saturday, August the 12th, from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. The book fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking and to meet with like-minded folk. It's free and we also provide free childcare. At the Brunswick Town Hall on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am till 6pm. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org or find us on Facebook, the Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter. On the program last week, Beverly Bell spoke about Honduras in Central America and Haiti in the Caribbean. Today we focus on Costa Rica, a country in the region we hear little of, bordered by Nicaragua to the north and Panama to the south. And to do that, I rang Andrea Bayer, from this Freedom Socialist Party in the US. Andrea, can we first talk about the history of Costa Rica? Has it followed the same path of other Central American countries, controlled first by the Spanish and later economically and politically under the direction of the US? Yes, in many ways it's the same kind of history as other countries in Central America. It was colonized by the Spanish, uh, you know, eventually gaining its independence. But it had a little bit of a different path because I think at first the colonizers, although they were attracted by the idea of, you know, gold and everything that gave Costa Rica its name, the rich coast, they weren't finding the same resources that they were finding in other Central American countries, and it was sparsely populated at the time of colonization, so there wasn't like a huge inviting labor force. So the colonization was perhaps maybe in some ways a little less severe than in other countries, although it was still, of course, there and brutal. In modern times, Costa Rica has been one of the most, if not the most, stable and economically well-off, although not that well-off, but relative to other Central American countries, it has been, it's, it's, in modern times, it's very much followed its own path in contrast to a lot of countries that suffered civil wars and dictatorships and, and all of that. Costa Rica had a very brief 44-day civil war in the 1940s over contested results of a presidential election that led to the military being abolished. And since 1949, there has been no military in Costa Rica. 
and starting at that time, a lot of social democratic reforms were put in place. A lot of major industries and resources were nationalized. There's very high educational level, very high literacy level. But now in recent years, Costa Rica has been experiencing a lot of the same things that have been happening in Latin America and other places, for that matter, with with neoliberalism and austerity and the financial crash of 2008. All of that has had a lot of the same results in Costa Rica as in other places. Are you saying that the lack of resources that were found was the reason why the country was freed of all the, the problems that have faced all the other countries? Because it is in a a strategic position next to Panama, next to Nicaragua. Yes, it, it, it is. And I don't know that there's a direct relationship from that old initial history of colonization and what happened, for instance, in the 19th and 20th centuries. I think there's probably not a direct line there. I think the reason for Costa Rica's different history in the 20th century had to do with their relative stability and their relative economic better position. And where that came from at that period, honestly, I'm not exactly sure. Although, if you're not pouring money into your military, you do have money to spend on other things. (laughs) Well, then, does that bring the U.S. military into Costa Rica to take over from a local military? Yes, I mean, the process is not very advanced yet, but the Southern Command, uh, the U.S. Unified Command of the different military services uh, that deals with Latin America, is making more inroads in the form of humanitarian aid and infrastructure building. And the great concern in Costa Rica is that this is uh, designed to make the U.S. corporate takeover of Costa Rica more easier, which has already begun. You know, there are plans for coal mining, um, huge hydroelectric projects, mining of other resources, copper, gold, bauxite, um, which is the main material used in making aluminum. And Alcoa, the U.S. aluminum company, is funding a lot of the resource exploration and like I say the fear especially among the indigenous people is that this activity this increase of activity by southern command is in the business of making it facilitating U.S. corporations exploiting Costa Rican resources. Can you just explain a little bit more about what the southern command means? Well, there are nine unified commands, and what that means is the branches of all the different military services in the United States working together in a joint way, and these nine unified commands basically carve up the world. The Southern Command uh, has been responsible for helping to overthrow Noriega in Panama, which left tens of thousands of Panamanian civilians dead and and other nefarious doings in the Southern Hemisphere. And one of the most interesting things about it today is that until recently, General John Kelly was the head of Southern Command, and he, of course, 
was appointed by Donald Trump to be head of Homeland Security in the United States until just a few days ago when he was hired to replace, let me think for a minute, firings and firings are going so rapidly under Trump it's hard to keep track. He's replacing the chief of staff who just got fired. So the, the Southern Command has the same kind of history of inserting governments favorable to the United States, supporting dictators until it doesn't like them anymore, and all of that kind of stuff that the U.S. military has around the world. I'm just wondering how the people of Costa Rica feel about this Southern Command encroaching into their country. You say that there hasn't been a military there for seven decades. What's the feeling of the people? Well, what I know most and what I've read about most is protests by the indigenous people and concerns by the indigenous people because a lot of the resources that U.S. corporations are interested in are on indigenous land. Does that mean that the indigenous peoples are a force in Costa Rica? They weren't wiped out like they were or nearly wiped out like they were in many other neighbouring countries? They're a very small but important part of the population, maybe 2%, but they play kind of an outsized role in politics and protest because there's a high degree of environmental activism and sensitivity in Costa Rica, which has one of the most ecologically diverse ecosystems in the world. And the... uh, The indigenous people in the 1970s were forced onto an extensive series of reservations in this mountainous part of the country that was believed at the time not to be very important (laughs) economically. But, of course, as always happens, you know, later it was discovered that there were all kinds of resources and all kinds of potential for exploitation of rivers and so on. And so the indigenous people in their fight to preserve the resources of Costa Rica, even though their numbers are small, are playing a very important role. And how are they doing that? They're working with international groups, and I don't know a lot about Specifically, I mean, I know that they're organizing uh, into groups and protesting in various ways. More specifically, I'm not sure, but that's what you read about when you read about the, the most recent stepping up of corporate incursion into uh, uh, Costa Rica. And has that corporate intervention already started? Are they already clearing forests, they're already planning building dams, that sort of thing? Yes, yes, thank you for asking that, because a lot of the way that the indigenous people are intervening is by protesting and in many cases holding up these projects. There was a big hydroelectric project that they had been talking about since, I think, the 1970s on a river, it was called the El Diquis hydroelectric dam project, and by law, the indigenous people are required to be consulted when there are these kinds of projects happening on their lands, according to, you know, uh, Costa Rican agreements with the indigenous people as well as 
international labor organization and UN conventions, there's no requirement that after this consultation the government will <laughs> will go according to their wishes, but they are required to be consulted. And they have the hydroelectric dam project uh, on a certain river major project was begun at one time in the 1980s or so and stopped because the indigenous people were not consulted and they managed to get it stopped. It's still a battle between the government and the indigenous people. It's not resolved, but many of the um, infrastructure projects that the Southern Command is taking on, like the bridges and so forth, are projects that are in process or completed. Have they also begun mining for things like copper and gold? And we, we all know the impact that that has on the local environment and destroying the water for the people. Yes, that's precisely why uh, they're being protested. The species diversity, in besides the question of, of water for the indigenous people and and where the power generated will go, who it will benefit, the species diversity in Costa Rica is amazing. Um, I've been there twice, and the birds and the butterflies, I mean, it's just fantastic. And Costa Rica is very proud of its environmental record. However, the same kinds of economic pressures are acting on Costa Rica as everywhere, and there are big campaigns to save uh, endangered sea turtles and and protect that species diversity as well as the, the water and the resources that the indigenous people and, and small farmers and so on depend on. Are there also plans to bring in palm plantations, knock down the forest? Um, but, uh, yes, it's already happened. There are palm plantations. I think it's more of a problem in other Central American community, uh, countries, but it is happening also in, in Costa Rica. Looking to the urban areas more, what's the battle there against neoliberalism and its impact on things like health, education? That has been a huge battle, and all kinds of sectors of society have been a part of fighting the impacts of neoliberalism Students, uh, feminists, environmentalists, unionists, and um, the first kind of big wave of protests against neoliberalism were the protests against uh, the signing of CAFTA, Central American Free Trade Agreement that involves, I think, five Central American countries plus the U.S. plus the Dominican Republic. There was a huge many-year battle over that, and Costa Rica was the last holdout against signing it. And, you know, the effects are uh, much the same as they have been in other places in terms of privatization of nationalized industry and resources, deregulation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that was one big battle, and that ultimately it was it took place over several years, and, and the Freedom Socialist Party that I belong to was involved both in the United States and in Australia in porting the struggle of uh, activists in, in Costa Rica opposing that treaty. 
but eventually the battle was lost. The government put it up for popular referendum, signing the treaty, and with a lot of carrot and stick uh, shenanigans and machinations, managed to narrowly get a vote in favor of CAFTA. So that battle was happening in the 2000s, and some of the other people who were in the streets protesting that were people with AIDS because of how CAFTA would protect U.S. patent and therefore make medicines, including uh, medicines against AIDS, more expensive. So that was a big battle. And then, you know, it's it's been a running battle since then against the effects of CAFTA and neoliberalism and austerity which took a new turn after the 2008 financial crisis, which uh, hit Costa Rica as well as everywhere else. And that led to International Monetary Fund and World Bank austerity programs being implemented, and, and there have been big, big fights over cuts to Social Security funding, cuts to health funding, in that way, it's very similar to other places in the world, and it's, a, it's an ongoing fight. I'm speaking with Andrea Bayer from the Freedom Socialist Party in the U.S., and the focus is Costa Rica in Central America. So for a fair amount of the population, their, their lifestyles and their economic well-being has been diminished by this CAFTA. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Public services where they exist are more expensive. A lot of people who used to have public sector jobs have been thrown out of work. Wealth inequality is growing. And the indigenous people who are the, the poorest people in, in the country and women who are the people who have to find a way to keep families together are being the most affected. Tell me about your times in Costa Rica, Andrea. I believe one time was a feminist conference. I was in Costa Rica twice in 2008 and 2013, and both times they were to be part of conventions of a socialist feminist party in Costa Rica called, in English, the Revolutionary Workers' Party. And while there, I also did participate in feminist panels and talked to feminists and LGBT activists. It was, they were both very, very enlightening for me, really rewarding experiences. What were the main issues for the people? Let's see. At that time, there were the same kinds of issues we've been talking about. The One of the conventions of this party, the Revolutionary Workers Party, or PRT, was in honor of they have a, a tradition of naming their convention in honor of someone, and it was one of their ecological activists who had been assassinated. Feminism was very much a question and a topic both for the PRT and the other people that I talked to. Latin American feminism is very important, and, you know, they face a lot of the same issues that, feminists elsewhere do in terms of sexism in the other movements, probably exacerbated by the fact that the Catholic Church has so much influence in Costa Rica. Costa Rica is one of the few places in the world where that it has 
Catholicism as its state religion. I think there are only four, maybe, including Costa Rica and the Vatican. So feminism was in how women can participate politically on an equal footing, you know, the issues of, of child care and equal participation were, were very, very important. But, of course, they were also looking at the world situation, which, you know, has been going to hell in a handbasket. And so that was very much a preoccupation also of the world economy and, and the world political situation. And a big fight for abortion rights and contraceptions, especially, as you say, it's a, a very staunch Catholic country. You know, that is something that I'm not remembering exactly what the discussions were around that and what the status of the of the laws were. I do know from talking to some of the lesbian activists there, at that time, the lesbian gay uh, LGBT movement was, at least in 2008, they were feeling like they were in a long battle just to educate people and just to get a certain degree of social acceptance. And it's been kind of surprising how fast, actually, consciousness has been raised and new rights have been, like domestic partnership rights and so on, have won there. In this most recent election in 2014, it was a little bit like the Trump-Bernie Sanders phenomenon in the United States in that for many, many decades, uh, Costa Rica had a two-party system. I mean, one of two parties was in power. But a new party actually won the presidency not that much different politically from the other parties, but people wanted change. They were, you know, fed up with the status quo. And a really strong showing was made in the first round of elections by a new progressive broad left front. The platform was very progressive in general, but the candidate, the presidential candidate himself, was calling for gay marriage, which activists that I talked to in 2008 didn't even think was, couldn't even see in their future. So I think things have progressed. And, and although the, although it's a Catholic country, it's also like Catholicism in other places, you know, of the people who call themselves Catholic, only about half are practicing Catholics. And being a former Catholic myself, I know that the attitudes of people who are Catholic are not, at all necessarily the same as the official attitudes of the church, and I think that's true in in Costa Rica as well. In 2017, as we are now, you're in contact with the people there still? Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, members of the Freedom Socialist Party are in Mexico City now at a meeting involving some of the people from the PRT, the Revolutionary Workers' Party, and it's a, a chance for left activists from the United States and Mexico and the Dominican Republic and Costa Rica to talk about the situations in all of our countries, you know, what we have in common, what kinds of things can we do together. Representatives from groups from those four countries work together on a campaign to free Nestor Salgado 
community police organizer, indigenous community police organizer in Mexico, and that was a, a fight that went on for, she was in prison for several years, and that fight was ultimately successful. So, yes, we still are in contact and, and looking for the ways that we can work together and help one another. Just finally, Andrea, can you talk for a couple of minutes about the situation in your home country, the United States? What are your feelings? <laughs> well, my feeling is, you know, the fight is on. Trump is peculiar. He is kind of a maniac, but his politics are not, insofar as they can be discerned from today, are not radically different than what we've experience, been experiencing, especially since the financial crisis of 2008. I mean, the anti-immigrant rhetoric and all of that bombastic scapegoating is not something new. He's taking it to exaggerated levels. And I think the question for us is, you know, where is the leadership going to come from to sustain the fights that are needed? You know, we had this enormous women's march immediately after his inaugural, like happened uh, in other countries around the world. And before the election, you know, there had been first the Occupy movement and then the Black Lives Matter movement. But the problem is, you know, needing a coordinated national leadership that can sustain these fights and bring people together on a united program. I think that's a challenge here and in, in many places. I mean, you see so many fight backs in, you know, from Greece to South Africa, you know, all over. And the question is, you know, how can we really be effective? And so that's something that our party is is grappling with, you know, trying to make alliances and forming united fronts. There's a lot of rising uh, neo-Nazi, quasi-fascist organizing happening in the United States, which is very, very dangerous and needs to be confronted. Counter-protesting at an anti-Muslim demonstration several weeks ago that was remarkable for the, the degree of cooperation among different communities and different groups. And now we've got another one coming up, another right-wing demonstration coming up two weekends from now that we're starting to plan for. So we have our work cut out out for us, but at the same time that it's hurting people and we have to try to stop that or ameliorate that, it is it is an opportunity to make some advances to crack some hard nuts that we haven't quite been able to crack in the past in terms of alliances and working together and non-sectarianism, and so we've just got to give it our best shot. Have you found that people in the past maybe have been compliant even to the extent of ignorant, not because of their own fault, but because they are kept ignorant by society, that these people are waking up to what is actually happening to them now? I think that, you know, what we're experiencing, I think definitely people are waking up. I think what we're experiencing is a, a really strong polarization because as people are suffering, you know, they're taking two different routes in response. You know, some people are responding to that right-wing populism of people like Trump 
And again, you see this all over in Europe and other places. You know, I've met so many people in the last, since Trump's election, at demonstrations who tell me this is the first protest I've ever been to. So it really is mobilizing people. You know, it's it's people who may all always have felt like something is wrong, things should be better for people than this, are wanting to do something about it. And that's why this question of, of leadership is so important, because the people are there who want to do something about it. And even the people who voted for Trump because of their own bad economic situations, their economic insecurity, you know, we can't write them off. We have to provide an alternative politics for them and an alternative explanation for why they're experiencing what they're experiencing that doesn't have to do with scapegoating and just a, a false ideologies. So I think, yes, people are waking up. People are, you know, more people are ready to move. And now, you know, we just have to find ways to give them that opportunity and and work together. Don't think I have anything to add except that I am hopeful. I am optimistic because of what you've you know what you've just asked. I think I think that this is a very perilous situation, but it's also a situation where we might actually bust down some conquer some obstacles that have held us back in the past. And I think part of that is a rise in the level of people's consciousness about the importance of the issues of the most oppressed, women, people of color, LGBT people, indigenous people. And if that's joined with a consciousness of our commonality as workers, that, that can be a really powerful thing. I was speaking there with Andrea Bayer from the Freedom Socialist Party in the U.S., 3CR, the time is 4 minutes to 5 o'clock. 3CR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. The National Conference for 2017 for IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australian Network, is being held here in Melbourne from the 8th to the 10th of September, consisting of a public forum on the Friday night and a conference on both Saturday and Sunday. To tell all, I've been joined by one of the conveners of the network, Shirley Winton. So Shirley, can we go back to the beginning? How did the network come into existence and the name? How did that come about? The IPEN Independent Peaceful Australia Network was formed in 2011 
2012. It was uh, in response to the US announcement of a major US military pivot into Asia Pacific that would see 60% of American military, which is from around the world, being shifted to Asia Pacific. And Australia would play a critical role in that pivot, the refocus of the US military, global military. It arose basically at a time when Obama, closely followed by Hillary Clinton, visited Australia in 2011, early 2012, and in fact made the first public announcement about this pivot in Australian Parliament. So it wasn't made in America, it wasn't made anywhere else, but it was made in Australian Parliament, and we thought that was pretty significant. Part of that announcement was the 2,500 U.S. Marines being stationed in Darwin, opening up Australia's defence infrastructure, meaning existing military facilities, to accommodate U.S. military, the U.S. planes, U.S. submarines. So it was basically entrenching and more deeply integrating Australia into the U.S. war machine. So we were really concerned that this is a continuation or actually deeper extension of Australia's um, sovereignty being undermined and that the decisions about um, going to war, decisions about our foreign policies were basically echoes of the US. And Australia has a history of that, even under the, as a British colony, we were just an appendage to the British military and that's part of that, you know, the Boer War, the First World War. After British decline, our alliance was, um, our subservience was replaced by America. So in every war that America has been involved in since the Second World War, Australia has always followed, actually acted as a rubber stamp, a rubber stamp militarily, but also in foreign policies and decisions that were made in the United Nations. It was in response to that that um, IPAN was formed. Um, there were several community groups, anti-war groups and unions um, that came together. We thought it was very important to advance an independent foreign policy as a move toward disconnecting or disengaging ourselves eventually from the Australia-US alliance. And part of it also was the opposition to US bases in Australia, presence of any foreign troops, having um, an Australia defence, self-defence, industry and self-defence capability that's not used for wars of aggression, overseas wars of aggression and being a, a deputy sheriff particularly of the US, particularly in the, in the region. So some of the groups that were involved were in Melbourne, uh, Medical Association for Prevention of War, that's the, the founding members, the uh, Spirit of Eureka, the Quakers in Melbourne, the Philippines Caucus for Peace, the Pax Christi um, were involved in that as well, and the MUA in um, Queensland, the Just Peace Group, and several other and Quaker groups, and Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. In uh, Sydney, we also had the several peace groups from Sydney. Similarly, in South Australia and West Australia, several peace groups, including Mayors for Peace and Joe Valentine and the Quakers there. The initial launch of IPAN was quite wide. Since then, we've, um, we have grown. We have over 70 affiliates, including the MUA, the ETU, the National Tertiary Education Union, the Australian Women, 
Union of Women, the CICD, the Unitarians in Melbourne, United Nations Committee in Queensland that have also have also joined it, and various um, local community peace groups. How long did it take you to decide on the name? Probably about three months. There was a lot of discussion about the independent, the independence and peaceful Australian foreign policy. There was a common agreement on, on IPAN as independent and peaceful foreign policy. We want to ensure that it was inclusive. It was also at a time when there were being more calls were being made by some politicians, including Malcolm Fraser, deceased and former Liberal Prime Minister, he started, it was about the same time that he started making also calls for greater independence from the US alliance. And it has resonated very widely. April 2014 was your first conference? That's right, our first conference was in Canberra. I think there would have been about 50 organisations nationally, 80 people that attended the conference and uh, there was our first major conference. Some of the speakers we had, Alison Bronofsky, Vince Emanuel, Humphrey McQueen, Jenny Grant from Medical Association for Prevention of War and there were various others. As a result of that conference uh, in Melbourne, in Victoria, we had a meeting with the Victorian Trades Hall Council Executive where we asked them to endorse the statement or the declaration of of the conference and Vince spoke at it and other union members spoke at it and it was endorsed by the Trades Hall. And then you moved on to 2015. Where did you go this time? In 2015 we went to Brisbane and there was also a very successful conference. It was held on the doorstep of the joint military exercises, the biannual joint military exercises in North Queensland around Cairns and so we had people who went to protest at those joint military exercises and also came to the conference. And that again was was successful. There was also at that conference the issue was being raised about the connection between the US military pivot into Asia-Pacific and also the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which at that time had a very high profile, which a connection was being made between the economic expansion of the US in Asia-Pacific, which was then followed by its military presence to protect its interests. Uh, Last year, in 2016, the conference, the national conference, was held uh, in Alice Springs outside Pine Gap, and that was on the 50th anniversary of signing, of handing over that facility, or rather that piece of land, to the Americans to build their U.S. military base, military and intelligence base. We had several local indigenous communities participating at the conference and also in protests outside Pine Gap and they had clearly stated that no permission was sought from the local owners of the land and they were opposed to, also opposed to the, to Pine Gap. Several of them said that non-Indigenous Australia and the Indigenous people have a, a common cause and that is for sovereignty, sovereignty of their land and we want sovereignty from the US military alliance. Was there any attempt at that time to get into the base? Yes, yes, there was, um, there was a group of people who did get into the base and they were subsequently charged and the hearing took place recently. I think it was it was a mentioned court it hasn't come to a full, but it was um, very successful. There was a lot of publicity. Also, Raytheon, which is one of the main suppliers of the military equipment at Pine Gap and 
around the world. They have their office in Annala Springs and there was a protest outside there with protesters chaining themselves to the fence and gates and blocking the gates so nothing could move in or out from Raytheon office. I'd imagine that some of the other military manufacturers are in Unala Springs as well, connected to Pine Gap. There is, because most of the Pine Gap is run, is virtually run or is outsourced to major US military conglomerates, uh, Raytheon, Boeing, uh, Lockheed Martin. They virtually run Pine Gap, so they would have their offices there. Most of them are, they are hidden, they're not seen by the public, their location is not known. We found out about Raytheon by somebody that knows the, the industry, but others are a real top secret there. It was a really successful conference. We had several protests outside Pine Gap. One of the IPAN people had actually put words against US bases in Australia, put the, the words to up their Kazali. Uh, which is going to be sung at the conference. The conference was held during the finals, the football finals, and they were being held in Melbourne, so we thought it was quite appropriate. The other thing about the conference is um, interesting. When we were holding this protest outside, we couldn't actually get close to the facility because they created another area. So there's now there were two areas of buffer zones, and then they created another one, the third one, and the third one, to get through into the third one, they searched us. We couldn't take bottles of water, the whole in sticks. And we had some interesting conversations with the police and asked the police, the territory police, why on earth were they protecting a military installation which is threat, you know, is involved in some major wars of aggression and killing assassinations of thousands of people and also drawing Australia into, into these wars. Their response was quite sympathetic to us. What was it like in the town itself? Was there sympathy there as well? There was sympathy. Um, there is, of course, there is a lot of issue about jobs and Pine Gap facilities. We've got a quite a strong propaganda machine there, as you can imagine, about work and dependency at Pine Gap for work for local community. But interestingly, the forum that we held on Friday, which is uh, just a general public meeting, we had about 180 people and probably half of them were local interested and curious to, to learn more about Pine Gap. We did have a discussion about alternative industries like the, you know, that area, Alice Springs would be very conducive to solar, building solar energy. And so we had some discussions with the locals over that. But there was an antagonism to us. It was, I think it was just concern about work. Pine Gap is closed, threatened with closure, then um, a lot of jobs will go. Can you talk a bit more about the involvement of the Aboriginal communities? In, in the actual Pine Gap protests, we had two speakers at the conference, two women speakers, on the conditions of the local Indigenous people and also relating some of their experiences about when Pine Gap installation was being built and the conditions of the Aboriginal people and the fact that some of the people had been removed from that area. At the protest, we had two really very good speakers who were calling on closing down, Aboriginal speakers who were calling on closing down Pine Gap and handing it over back to the Indigenous community, the land. The conference this year is in Melbourne, but there's been work done prior to that. 
So in March and April, um, IPAN circulated, widely circulated a statement calling for endorsements and for people to sign it for publication in a major newspaper. So the statement called for basically was titled Keep Australia Out of US Wars, a public call for an independent, peaceful foreign policy. It was very, very widely circulated. It was signed by nearly 4,000 people and published in the the Saturday paper. But it drew a lot of interest and a lot of support in calling for for Australia to withdraw from US wars, the uh, the military bases and also the Australia-US alliance. And you're getting a few high-profile people now, aren't you? On Friday Friday evening from 7 to 9, it'll be Friday the 8th of September, from 7 to 9, it's at the Jasper Hotel Conference Centre in 489 Elizabeth Street, Melbourne, a public forum, and the key speakers will be Lydia Thorpe. Lydia is the Gunai Gunjimara woman, uh, Victorian traditional owner for Land Justice Group. She will speak on treaty, why we, Australia needs a genuine treaty with the Aboriginal people. Prior to that, there will be a formal uh, welcome to country. In regard to the treaty, um, IPAN has a strong position on treaty and all our statements are prefaced with this declaration. We acknowledge the country was violently seized from the first people 230 years ago. We pay our respects to their long struggle for justice and self-determination and we affirm that true independence cannot be achieved without a just and sovereign treaty with the Indigenous people of this land. Lydia Thorpe will be speaking on treaty. Lydia is one of the um, main Aboriginal activists, or one of many Aboriginal activists in, in Melbourne who also attended the earlier this year the, the conference in Alice Springs and, and called for, for a treaty. The other speakers on Friday night will be Associate Professor David Vine. He's an American Professor of Anthropology has written many books on Jeju Island, the struggle of the people in Jeju Island and also the struggle of the, of the indigenous people from Diego Garcia to go back to their land. He'll be discussing Australia's critical role in the global network of US military bases, which now total an estimated 800 countries, 800 outside the United States. And he'll discuss the role of the US bases in Australia and beyond in US-led wars and the significance of this unprecedented network for global peace and security. So he's going to be a very interesting speaker. Alison Bronowski. Alison is a, is a diplomat, is involved with the War Powers Reform and Honest History, and she's a fellow of Australian Institute of International Affairs. Warren Smith is the National Assistant Secretary of the MUA. Warren will be speaking on why peace and justice are union business. The other speakers on Friday night are Sung Hee Choo. Sung is an activist from Jeju Island opposing the US base being built there. Currently, she spent three months in jail in opposition to, to the base in Jeju Island. In fact, when she was in jail, David Vine from America visited her and wrote a book about um, Jeju Island. They're the main speakers for Friday night. On Saturday, the conference will be held at the Maritime Union of Australia Auditorium, 46 to 54 Island Street in uh, West Melbourne. So some of the key speakers 
obviously, again, the Professor David Vine, but there'll also be, and Alison Bronowski, but there'll also be Dr. Mark Gilligan. Uh, Mark Gilligan is a former advisor def- who worked in the Defence Department, and he will speak on, is Australia capable of defending itself? His view is that Australia has all the capacity to defend itself, and we don't need to rely on other Another big pow- other big powers, and he's got very very good facts and statistics. Richard Tanter would speak on what would an independent Australian foreign policy look like, and that would include about our own self defence industries. There, there'll also be a speak on can Australia be independent and still host US bases. In the afternoon after lunch, Hung Sang Hee Choi will speak on US militarisation of South Korea and the situation on the Korean Peninsula, the history and the present political and military conditions. And that is a very, very timely topic in view of the provocations that and manoeuvres are going on around the peninsula. Warren Smith will speak on justice and peace, a union business. Um, and Dr Vince Capitura will speak on the influence of US on Australian politics and the military. He'll talk about the US lobby in Australia and the pressure that it's exerting, the influence that it's exerting on on politicians, the unions, a whole range of um, organisations, particularly through their US-Australia leadership. It's done a lot of research into that. And then Alex, will, uh, Edney Brown, will speak on drone warfare, but also on the militarisation of education. So people are made probably aware that there's big inroads being made, particularly into Australian universities. And Lockheed Martin is the most sort of prominent at the moment. But this militarisation of universities is actually extending now into militarisation of our economy and society, our manufacturing industry, which we've heard just recent announcements of Fishman's Bend in Victoria, uh, where GMH used to have its factory, is now being designated as a as a high security military manufacturing precinct. And Boeing is already there. Um, we expect there'll be ma- some of the major uh, multinational military corporations moving in there, which is part of the military-industrial complex that's that's now, you know, making inroads into Australia as well. Olivier Bancoult, he's a leader of the Chagosians. The Chagosians are the indigenous people of Diego Garcia who were evicted from their country between 1966 and 1972 to make way for the U.S. military base on that island, on Diego Garcia. Diego Garcia was a British colony and in 1966 leased the, the base to, to America to set up the biggest U.S. military base in the Indian Ocean. Since that time, the Chagossians people have been struggling and fighting for to, rec- to go back to their country and their land, and they've been challenging the U.S. in the United Nations to the point now just very recently, a couple of months ago, there was a, um, an attempt made a, by the Chagossians and other countries supporting their return to their country or reclaiming their country back. There was a resolution put in the United Nations to seek an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice in The Hague on the legal status of the Chagos Islands. Now, that's pretty, pretty mild, but it was vigorously opposed by the US, Britain and, guess who, Australia. But the majority, 94 countries, voted in favour. Mind you, this is not actually a definitive 
condemnation of the British and the Americans seizing the the, the island, uh, it's only seeking an advisory opinion. And even there they opposed it. So that, again, shows the uh, Australia's la- being a lackey, an absolute lackey and puppet of the US and, and in this case the British as well. The other thing about Diego Garcia is that it's being used by, by the US for, the, for its rendition program after 9-11, so the rendition program is where they interrogate and, tor- and torture suspects on that island. Some are being held for months at the end, so it's highly secretive. So that's going to be a very, very important speaker. Then on Sunday, we've got James O'Neill, who will speak on South China Sea and the threat of war. Margie Beavers from Medical Association for Prevention of War will speak on the real costs of Australia for Australia of US militarism. There is a, a move now being made, and that will come out in the conference, putting out a call on the Australian government to redirect public funds from supporting US wars into community needs. She'll also speak on our role in nuclear disarmament, and she called it, Are We Leaders or Weasels? This session from 11 o'clock session will be on building a people's movement against wars of aggression. There will be a panel comprising six people, speaking 10 minutes each, speaking about the struggles in their countries for independence and against U.S. military, US military bases and, and troops. And that will be followed after lunch by a session on practical organising. And the practical organising and building the movement will be around independent foreign policy, moving the money, which is to, to public needs, US bases and militarisation of education and pieces union business. I should mention too, after each keynote speaker, there'll be a 20-minute discussion. So we want to ensure that there's maximum input and discussion at this conference and it's not just passive listening and um, you know receiving information that there is input and that's that will we hope will particularly encourage people on Sunday afternoon session a guest speaker for for Saturday night at the conference dinner is Rob Starry and everyone knows Rob Starry who's a human rights and civil liberties lawyer but he's also made some important statements you know the the rise of terrorism in recent period needs to be linked to the, the wars um, that are particularly taking place in the Middle East, the wars of aggression there. That's a very general outline of, of our conference. We do hope people come and involve themselves in it. We would like people to register if, if possible. We've got a bookings through Tribe Booking, so it's www.tribebooking.com slash 286873. The cost is $50 per day for employed and $30 for people on low incomes and that includes lunch. So all lunches, morning tea and afternoon teas are provided. There's also $10 entry on the Friday night. So we would appreciate bookings because it will give us a pretty good idea of how many people are attending for our catering purposes but also in the way that we set up the the actual venue at at Way. We're trying to have tables so as as a conference and not as a public meeting so people are sitting around tables so that enables them to make notes and, um, you know, have cups of teas and things like that. And thanks to Shirley Winton from IPAN if you'd like to go, 8th to the 10th of September, trybooking.com slash 286 
0800-873-873 so they can do the catering for all the people coming or the IPAN webpage. Coming up in a moment, Tillman Ruff. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. On the program last month, the current president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, Dr Margie Beavis, spoke about the historic vote at the UN in New York on the 7th of July, a global treaty to ban nuclear weapons, a move that supporters hope will lead to the eventual elimination of all nuclear weapons. Today I'm speaking with Associate Professor Tillman Ruff a past president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. He helped establish ICANN, the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons, and was also its founding chair, is co-president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of War, a medical advisor to the International Department of the Red Cross, and also associate professor of the Nossel Institute for public health. Tillman was able to attend the whole three weeks of the talks in New York, which concluded on July the 7th, as he has had with the previous meetings leading up to the momentous occasion. I spoke with Tillman recently and asked him first, was there a time, can he remember, when he wasn't concerned about nuclear weapons and their threat to the planet? Probably not, but certainly my consciousness grew during the late 70s and the 80s. Initially I was, I got involved sort of with the Vietnam War and human rights issues. I guess at that time one was certainly aware of nuclear weapons and coming from a family that had suffered displacement and deaths in both world wars, you know, I was very conscious of the human impact of war and nuclear weapons were certainly on the horizon, yeah, pretty much ever since I can remember thinking about the wider world. And how did you put that thinking into action in the early years? Well, in the early years I got involved in Amnesty International. Uh, We set up the world's first high school group of Amnesty and having the experience of helping to get somebody out of jail, you know, on the other side of the world with enormous gratitude from his family. It was a young guy in Crete at the time of the colonel's regime in Greece and he'd written a political slogan on a wall and was in the slammer for about a year because of it. That was enormously empowering. So I had that sense that working on universally accepted basic principles, you could make a difference to somebody on the other side of the world even without knowing them. I think ending Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War and seeing the changes that were possible when the Whitlam government came to power in 1972 was pretty significant. Did you ever go to Hiroshima or visit the Pacific Islands where the tests had been 
detonated or the Central Australia to see the impact on the people there? I was born in Adelaide and my father was a, a mechanical engineer who worked for the Commonwealth Department of Works, which was in the old days when the government used to actually build stuff and do stuff. And he, as a young engineer, was constantly being sent to Woomera, to the rocket range. I was born in 1955, so that was right in the middle. I, I would have been you know, a toddler when the worst fallout came over Adelaide in 1956. And I had this sort of vague sense that there was stuff going on up there that was pretty big and pretty dangerous and pretty nasty. Dad didn't talk much about what he did up there, but I certainly had the opportunity to go to Hiroshima later on and have always found it a very moving, moving place. And in the Pacific, French Polynesia became a, a place that I did quite a lot of work about in relation to ciguatera, a fish poisoning disease that people get from fish that grow on, from toxic algae produced, particularly on dead and damaged coral surfaces, and there were plenty of those during the period of the nuclear testing period, and, and evidence of major outbreaks of ciguatera in relation to the testing program, which the French government at the time, you know, even until the 90s, was claiming that there were no adverse health and environmental impacts from its nuclear tests and the Ciguatera evidence was really the first very explicit evidence that there was an impact. They weren't monitoring workers, they weren't at the time, you know, you didn't see increases in cancer incidence as you do now. So that was scientifically for me a way of you know, being able to combine sort of medical background with making a really useful difference on some evidence that was important politically was pretty good thing to do. Were there any other people focusing on public health in that area at the time you began to do it? Well, I got involved in um, the Medical Association for Prevention of War and the International Federation, International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, about the same time in the early 80s. And I heard inspiring figures like Bernard Lown, one of the founders of, of IPPNW and the guy who invented the defibrillator you know, the thing that restarts your ticker after you have a heart attack or it stops for other reasons. Pretty useful thing to do. And Helen Caldicott, of course, the famous Australian paediatrician, and them presenting this as the most acute, the most urgent global health threat and something that was a professional responsibility for for doctors to engage in was, was pretty compelling for me. So working with others is the only way you make traction and can sustain working on these big complex issues over a long period of time. Talk about those organisations in the early years and how they got off the ground and how they expanded to, well, into ICANN and to the result we had just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, a few decades in between. But there were groups that got started, doctors' groups, around the world, particularly in the 50s. In the UK, there was the Medical Association for Prevention of War, and that was what the Australian group was named after, founded by Rick Kefford, oncologist in Sydney, who had spent some time in the UK, joined the UK group, and established it with some colleagues in, in Sydney when he came back in about 81. And then IPPNW was this international federation founded by Russian and American doctors at a time when working across that Cold War divide was a very difficult and courageous thing to do and they really cut through and they really presented the evidence of the catastrophic impacts of any use of nuclear weapons, the impossibility of any meaningful response widely to and had good access to leaders particularly in the former Soviet Union especially to Mikhail Gorbachev and 
very substantially influenced his thinking and, you know, he said repeatedly and wrote that the evidence presented had made a major difference in his thinking and contributed to the end of the Cold War and he and President Reagan actually seriously discussing the possibility of getting rid of their nuclear weapons altogether and their shared understanding that a nuclear war can't be won and must never be fought. And some of the arms control agreements that came at the end of the Cold War that both by agreement and by reciprocating initiatives in the context of significant goodwill on both sides, the, the elder Bush and, and Reagan and Gorbachev on the Soviet and then Russian side, really making a major difference. So I think the sort of worth of organised physicians accessing leaders with compelling evidence was a model that you know really worked then. Fast forward to 2005, at that time, you know, there's nothing happening in disarmament. Nuclear arsenals are trickling down slowly. The danger that we all face isn't diminishing proportionately. Unfortunately, there's so much redundant overkill, and the more we know, the worse it looks. So that wasn't making a significant difference to our risks. And a lot of the Cold War infrastructure, the architecture of weapons on high alert, thousands of weapons on high alert, ready to go within a few minutes notice, you know, a, a setup for an accident or some kind of technical error or unintended escalation or cyber attack was continuing and the five yearly review conferences of the non-proliferation treaty were going nowhere. And in 2005, there was, you know, a month of meetings, hundreds of diplomats, not a single line of agreement. And at the same time, we had this extraordinary positive development of the international campaign to ban landmines. We're just a couple of middling-sized countries with international organisations like the Red Cross and some UNICEF and with a whole bunch of civil society organisations was able to string together a campaign that built momentum based on the unacceptable consequences of the weapons. So shifting it away from the military and the security, the sort of narrow abstractions around the weapons and what they're supposed to be for, but the fundamental reality of what they do. They were spectacularly successful in getting a treaty to ban landmines that has had major impacts globally, even for the countries that haven't signed it. So we had this contrast of nuclear disarmament stuck, nothing happening, no talks about talks, but major progress being possible in other areas. Dr Ron McCoy, a very distinguished Malaysian obstetrician and co-president of IPPNW who said you know, we need an international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons and he actually coined that term. A bunch of us in Australia, Fred Mendelssohn, Sue Wareham, Dimity Hawkins, Bill Williams, God bless him, gone now sadly much too early last year, who thought sounds like a good idea, managed to get some resources from some wonderful wonderful donors in, in Melbourne and really put together the basis for this campaign that became ICANN that over the decade has now grown to more than 100 countries and more than 400 partner organisations and was the main partner with governments in getting this ban treaty over the line. When you organised that lunch at Parliament House 10 years ago, you really thought that 10 years' time you could reach what you have? I was certainly hopeful. I thought it was possible... I didn't worry too much about trying to predict too precisely. I think you just put your head down and do what you can, knowing it's possible. The prohibition part is relatively, you know, simpler in terms of, you know, if you look at the process for getting rid of unacceptable weapons, the lesson of history for biological and chemical weapons and cluster munitions and landmines is first you ban them 
first you make it clear that there is international law that says these are unacceptable, that nobody should have them, that they must never be used, and we get rid of them, and that provides the basis and motivation for then the regimes that progressively eliminate them and dismantle them in verified ways. That's been what's happened for all of those other treaties that are pretty much, by and large, working reasonably well. But for nuclear weapons, we've had this extraordinary anomaly that they haven't been illegal, and everything about nuclear weapons and disarmament has been dictated by the countries that wield them, which is a, you know, a recipe for complete paralysis, which was what we've seen. So this ban treaty process was really quite revolutionary in a number of respects, I think, in applying this completely well-established concept, but in the nuclear space, was novel. The idea that the rest of the world can't get rid of weapons they don't own, but they sure can ban them and fix that gap in law. And in a sense, it's brought global humanity and democracy to nuclear disarmament. It's been driven by the humanitarian impacts. The dangers exist as long as the weapons do. They're terrible. We can't deal with it. If they're used, we have to get rid of them. But moving that away from the sort of completely sort of ossified and and paralysed debates about security and deterrence and parity and balance that make these seem like chess pieces on some grand board completely removed them, the reality and the danger, I think has been important. Taking this through the United Nations and not just any old UN process because the Non-Proliferation Treaty, the Conference on Disarmament, the main UN bodies supposed to deal with nuclear disarmament have a consensus rule, like every country has to agree, and therefore they're stuck. They're not going anywhere. The Conference on Disarmament hasn't been able to agree on its agenda for 21 years. And this was done through the General Assembly, where every country has one vote, and if consensus isn't possible to achieve, then a defined majority of states can vote and adopt things. And for this ban treaty process, it was two-thirds majority was required, and every country can participate. That's a huge victory, though, isn't it, for the start of a small group of NGOs, health professionals, to end up in the General Assembly room at the United Nations with 120-something countries represented and, and observers there and a huge crowd of people to witness this historic vote. Sure, yeah. No, and it wasn't just ICANN, but ICANN certainly played a very but important... They started the ball absolutely. rolling. And, and the other really important initiative I think that's that's hard to overstate is the role of the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement. Uh, this is the world's largest humanitarian organisation as a crucial partner of, of governments in humanitarian relief following disasters and conflicts. When the ICRC really took this on in 2010, the International Committee of the Red Cross, which is really the sort of kind of leadership and from an international legal point of view in terms of international humanitarian law, the, the laws that govern armed conflict, it's the custodian of, of those essentially. So when the President, Jacob Kallenberger, in 2010 called the Diplomatic Corps together in Geneva and said, we're going to take this on as a major priority for the whole of the movement, you know, this is unfinished business, this is a humanitarian imperative to get rid of nuclear weapons, that really made a difference. And then those conferences that built an increasing strength of 
conviction expressed through the Non-Proliferation Treaty and the UN General Assembly and then working groups that actually recommended a ban treaty as the best way forward, again adopted by majority vote. Those were really the breakthroughs over the last, over the last seven years. A huge process though, isn't it, going through all those meetings and gathering people together, all that? Oh, it is. It's an enormous process. And, I, you know, it's only possible because in the end, you know, governments can be convinced that they need to act. And it's sometimes hard to realise in Australia, in a sense, how bitter and twisted and stuck our politics are around this. As you mentioned, the number of states that supported this uh, in the final vote was 122. So there are 193 members of the United Nations, the 28 members of NATO, the nine nuclear-armed states, and a couple of states that claim to rely on nuclear weapons for their protection, South Korea, Japan, Australia, were not in the room. So that basically cuts out 40. So there's only 150-odd possible states who are going to be there, and there were 140-plus in the room at some point in March the first session and in June, July. So that's nearly all of everybody else. And that's in the face of very strong, pretty unsubtle, some of it very good old-fashioned checkbook diplomacy, some really strong, um, nasty stuff. Did you see that happening? Coming from the nuclear-armed states. Yes, we saw that happening in the room. And we saw delegations back off. We saw them leave the room. We saw them not show it for the vote. We saw them complain bitterly. We saw them take on contradictory positions. There was a lot of that going on, especially in the last week when it became clear that a treaty was actually on the cards and that the initial attempts to sort of filibuster and stall and try and kick this down the road because this, the mandate that the General Assembly gave these negotiations actually ran out on the 7th of July, the last day of, of this negotiating session. So if they'd not been able to agree an outcome then, they would have had to go back to the General Assembly session coming up starting in September and kind of start all over again with more opportunity for pressure, with more contestation, with more trying to peel off small states by bigger states, but there was some very strong pressure put on and we saw a few countries you know, change their vote unexpectedly at the last minute, clearly because of pressure. So particularly in that context, 122 to 1 is a stunning result, absolutely stunning. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. My name is Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with Associate Professor Tillman Ruff about the momentous vote in the UN on the 7th of July to sign a treaty to ban nuclear weapons. Talk about the role of the chair, the important role she played. The chair of the, the conference was um, Elaine Gomez-White, the Costa Rican ambassador to the UN in Geneva. Absolutely delightful, warm, smart, personable, you know, very adept, very good at reading the room. Then the chair is always the kind of person who, you know, if things are difficult and not going well, the chair always cops the rap. I mean, the chair always gets clobbered by everybody. Whatever's going wrong, you blame the chair. <laughs> So she copped a bit of that on the way through. And there were some times when her strategy, you know, wasn't quite sure about where she was going. Um, the actual negotiating part, when they broke into groups and really started talking Turkey about the text, 
was actually relatively short. Some delegations were wished that have had have started earlier. In the end, it doesn't matter because we got a good, strong treaty and at every successive draft, this treaty got stronger. From her first draft in May that she circulated before the conference, the subsequent drafts, three of them during the conference, the multiple different um, adjustments were all in the direction of, of strengthening the treaty. So, you know, the bottom line is she did extraordinarily well. I mean, if she retired now, she, you know, she deserves major accolades and thanks and adulation from all of us. And she, did she get it hero. at the day? She did. And she was clearly visibly very moved and delighted by what happened and really did a terrific job. Costa Rica is a small country. So compared with some of the larger countries that would have had a much larger team of people supporting her, she really only had two or three people supporting her, which is quite challenging. She's, of course, got the UN Office for Disarmament Affairs supporting her as well. But, for example, the open-ended working group last year that recommended this ban treaty to the General Assembly, the Thai uh, Ambassador Tokpani, you know, he had like five five or six Thai diplomats supporting him and and she would have could have done with a few more I think but so it was a small delegation but really did very effectively and with a good core group of supportive countries Ireland Austria Brazil Mexico Nigeria South Africa New Zealand Malaysia Indonesia being I, I think really the leaders of this process a really good broad cross-regional grouping but she did enormously well and and things will keep moving this treaty is not going to stop it it'll enter into force when 50 countries go through their own constitutional processes to formally ratify ratify their signatures and it opens for signature on the 20th of September which is the first week of the new general assembly when hopefully many heads of state and foreign ministers will be in new york and and sign so that it can enter into force very soon but but she did um, really brilliantly and and used a lot of creative processes you know breakout groups when there were testy issues that were really quite complex and difficult to deal with she'd break into panels so that governments could explore positions ask questions of experts all sorts of very creative ways of working that really helped to, that were really quite novel in, in, in a UN context. She was very inclusive of civil society, much more than has happened in any nuclear disarmament negotiation in the past. She was enormously respectful and inclusive of the Hibakusha, the nuclear victims of nuclear weapons use in Japan, and also the nuclear test survivors who were there. She always made a point of meeting with them, thanking them for, for their testimony and of... Uh, you know, clearly thanking them for their enormously important contributions. She was a star. She copped a bit of misogyny, especially early on, I have to say, including from some of the folk that should know better, but she did brilliantly. Can you talk a bit more about the role of civil society through those weeks? You were there the whole time? Yeah, I wouldn't miss a day of it, Jan. No, <laughs> <laughs> it was so wonderful. What was it like, though? How did you interact how did civil society interact with the, with the governments and their representatives? Different ways of, of working. So to some extent it's important just to, to be in the room and to monitor what's going on. At the end of each discussion segment, there would be an opportunity for civil society contributions. So we, we could actually make statements from the floor. When people are gathering and leaving, 
there is an opportunity to interact directly with the diplomats. There are often morning meetings, lunchtime meetings, side events, evening meetings where there's an opportunity to interact informally with people and there's an awful lot of calling of missions and visiting of missions in New York to make sure they knew about what was going on, make sure they knew how important it was, make sure they knew how important it was that they were properly credentialed so they could vote. That's a bit of a process they have to go through and make sure that they were in the room on the Friday when if a vote happened and as soon as, uh, you know, Friday morning, everybody was pretty nervous the last day of the conference when adoption was scheduled, but the room just started f- filling up with so many people. And then I was sure it was uh, we had it over the line. But a number of delegations were, were very generous in their praise of, of civil society contribution, and, and I guess the Austrian ambassador was most explicit when he said that, you know, it was the leadership that ICANN provided that, that enabled this, that it wouldn't have happened otherwise. So so it was a really strong partnership between governments really keen to address this, uh, this existential threat, working with partners in civil society. And I think the Red Cross was also very active and strong and present. Civil society couldn't be present when they broke into smaller groups in the sort of informal sessions, you know, you hang around and catch people as they're coming and going and find out from people in the room what's what's going on. But we were certainly very much engaged and had unprecedented access to the room and to delegates. How did you feel the sense that Australia wasn't, re- wasn't represented, was only represented by civil society? It was disappointing. It was really disappointing. It was the first time ever, and this has been confirmed by foreign affairs officials in Senate estimates questioning. It was the first time ever that Australia has not joined a multilateral disarmament process on anything. So that's a pretty sad statement of where we are. Yeah, it is. And and not just weren't we weren't there, but we've actually actively sought to undermine and oppose this process every step of the way and indeed have been perhaps the most vociferous of the non-nuclear armed states that's been trying to hose, shut this whole thing down at various points, for example, in calling for the vote last year in the general in the open-ended working group after having been party to the negotiations up until the night before and then sort of pulling the plug at the last minute was pretty bad faith. So Australia's really blotted its copybook fairly severely and is clearly on the wrong side of history on this. I'm happy to say that an Australian parliamentarian was there, Senator Scott Ludlam, then Senator Scott Ludlam, was there for the last week in New York and and made a very good statement to the General Assembly about the importance of parliamentarians in countries that aren't yet supportive of the treaty working to try and, and shift shift their government positions. We did meet with the Australian mission in New York. They're clearly well aware of of, um, ICANN's position. They were monitoring the negotiations very closely. They did say that Australia was very actively working in the United Nations to increase involvement of civil society and of Indigenous people. And we spent most of the meeting at the mission actually with... um, Karina Lester, second generation nuclear test survivor from South Australia, telling her story. So in a sense we were doing exactly with civil society and with Indigenous people there doing exactly what they were saying that they were supportive of um, and of course at the time weren't on this issue. So it was disappointing and, and hopefully, hopefully we can change that. 
Tell me about the feeling in the room when the vote was taken and the result was read out. Is it read out? You can see it happening. It was an interesting process. The hope was to adopt it by consensus. So initially the the conference president proposed that it be adopted by consensus. I don't think anybody was convinced that that would wash, but it was, I think, quite appropriate on her part to, to actually suggest that. So essentially then the whole room, almost without exception, you know, was standing, crying, clapping, hugging. And then it became very clear when when that uh, applause died down that the Netherlands took the floor. The Netherlands was the only um, nuclear-allied state in the room. Uh, they were there not because their government was supportive of the treaty, but because parliamentary and public pressure in the Netherlands has been so strong that they were unable to stay away. So they opposed the, every article of the treaty at every possible point, and in the end, when the chair made that, uh, proposed that it be adopted by consensus, after that they actually said, no, there isn't consensus in the room and formally called for the vote, as any delegation can. So then there was a vote and, and then there's an electronic voting system where the delegates push a button at their desk and you see the results immediately tally up and you can see exactly which countries are not voting, abstaining, voting against or voting yes, so you can see it. And then when everybody's voted and the secretary of the conference asks whether everybody's vote is recorded correctly, uh, then the machine is locked and then the result is, is declared. But you can see it on the screen as it's, as it's emerging. So it was 122 in favour, one opposed, Netherlands, and one abstention, Singapore. Why did they abstain? I don't know. Uh, in fact, my strong suspicion is that it was US pressure. ASEAN, the whole of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, so the ten nations to our north, have been very consistent and very strong and quite unified on this issue. And in the General Assembly last year, when it came to the vote to mandate these negotiations, ASEAN was the only regional grouping that held absolutely rock solid. In every other region, even Latin America and Africa and Pacific Island countries, pressure from nuclear-armed states managed to peel off a few of the smaller and and weaker or economically dependent um, states, whereas ASEAN, all of them stood solid. And it certainly wasn't obvious that it was coming. Singapore played, uh, you know, perhaps not quite as strongly supportive as a number of the leaders in ASEAN, particularly Thailand, Malaysia and Indonesia, but, you know, not, certainly not breaking with consensus and there were statements delivered by ASEAN at several points during the negotiations. So it was unexpected and I suspect it was last-minute pressure probably from the US. What's been the role of the nuclear state since the vote? Very interesting um, statement that came out from the P3, so United States, France and United Kingdom, within a day of the vote. Very, very strong and strident stuff, which claims a sort of a level of disdain and arrogant kind of exceptionalism above the law, as if they essentially lived on another planet. I mean, really, it's the most extraordinary stuff. They said things like, we do not intend to sign, ratify, or ever become party to it, the ban treaty. There'll be no change in the legal obligations on our countries with respect to nuclear weapons. 
accession to the ban treaty is incompatible with the policy of nuclear deterrence, which is reassuring. So there's nothing in their statement at all about what they're doing about disarmament, about recognising their obligation to disarmament. It's everything about digging their heels in and playing tough and trying to ignore this, which I think will be a recipe for their undoing. I mean, this is the kind of arrogant exceptionalism being above the law that has necessitated this banned treaty and, and it's the frustration about their continued reliance on nuclear weapons claiming some ordained right to threaten everybody else that they don't allow anybody else to, to claim. That, that's this sort of nuclear apartheid, as the South Africans have called it, that's the fundamental problem. And this just reinforces that. So it's it's a very arrogant statement, which I hope will, and I'm pretty sure will have in time come back to haunt them. What's very interesting about this statement is that it's P3, it's not P5. Most of the the criticism of this process thus far over the last seven years has been P5, so China and Russia joining. That consensus has clearly been broken. I mean, it was fractured at various points on the way through, most particularly with China. So China was very interesting and quite positive about this process in the end. They let it be known. They abstained from the vote in the General Assembly last year, so I didn't vote against it as all the other P5 countries did. They let it be known that they were considering participating over December, January. In February, when they finally announced that they wouldn't join, it was very respectful. They said, we agree with the aims, we respect the process and, and what the countries are trying to do here. For us, you know, this is not the most fruitful path, but we, you know, we, we respect the process and agree with its, with its aims. So much more conciliatory than any of the others. So I think that's actually quite a good thing. I, I would be much more worried if the nuclear armed states didn't care about this treaty, if they thought, this, oh, yeah, this is just another piece of UN verbiage, you know, more fine words about nuclear disarmament that we've heard for decades coming out of New York, we can ignore this. We can just uh, put our heads down and carry on business as usual, modernising our arsenals and retaining them till kingdom come. Well, that's not the situation. They know that this treaty will change the game. They don't like it as that angry statement demonstrates and as a previous statement from the US to its NATO allies before the UN vote last year also makes clear it outlined a whole lot of ways in which this treaty would interfere with nuclear war planning with the policy of nuclear deterrence with the sharing of US nuclear weapons as happens with five NATO countries in Europe it acknowledged that this treaty if as then envisaged would have effects even on countries that haven't signed the treaty so basically it acknowledged that this treaty really would make a difference. So I'm really encouraged by that because this, this treaty matters. And where do you think it will be by the end of this year? By the end of this year I hope that we'll have a large number of countries that have signed on to the treaty, hopefully over 100. There are 120 voted for the negotiations, 122 voted for the treaty, so I'm pretty hopeful that by the end of the year we'll have close to that a good 100, hopefully, signatories. And then the next year, hopefully sooner rather than later, it will enter into force when 50 states have ratified it and it will then become international law. Obviously only binding on the states that join it, but with very powerful political, ethical, moral and economic 
pressures on those that continue to claim protection from weapons that are now clearly illegal under international law. It puts them on the back foot. It puts them, it presents them essentially as pariahs and outlaws in international law, which they are. And it will make it much easier to argue that responsible banks and pension funds around the world should no longer invest in companies that produce illegal weapons. Well, all I can say to Finnish Tillman is congratulations for a job well done. Thanks very much, Dan. And that's Associate Professor Tillman Ruff, long-time, lifetime activist for peace, speaking about the, the recent vote in the UN July the 7th to ban nuclear weapons. Coming up in a couple of minutes, done by law, but a couple of community announcements, and then I'll be off. The Independent and Peaceful Australia Network presents War, Peace and Independence. Keep Australia out of US wars. Amidst an escalating threat of another major war breaking out, this timely conference will be held in Melbourne from the 8th to the 10th of September. The conference will address the struggle against US bases, drone warfare, peace as union business, US political and military influence and much more. For details and bookings, head to ipan.org.au or go to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's Facebook page, a 3CR supporter. And we'll be back at 4 o'clock next Tuesday. Bye for now.